It's time. We are not called to be nice. Sandy Rios. Welcome, Sandy. Thanks for being here. We are often called to be confrontational. And here with me in D.C. is Fox News contributor Sandy Rios. You and you still like me or you, or you don't like me, James? Are you okay? You all right? <laughs> I'm a musician. I can't help it. Uh, longtime Fox News contributor Sandy Rios, thanks very much for being with us. We have, I think it's four to one youth in America wants gay marriage. Our kids are the product of public schools. No wonder they poll the way they do. It's time to stand up or we're going to lose everything we have. Director of Governmental Affairs for the American Family Association. Step up, speak up, say something, do something. This isn't a game. This is real life. Cindy Rios is with the American Family Association. A pro-life radio talk show host. Some things are worth fighting for. And some, really, the, the, the hosting of this gathering of leaders from all around the world. You had the Prime Minister of India, you had the President of China, you had the President of France and, and the Chancellor of Germany and so forth. These folks aren't ridiculous. They, they're smart. Secretary. Well, that's uh, the U.S. Special Presidential Envoy for Climate, John Kerry. And he's defending all of these people that met to talk about how to reduce you know, carbon emissions and how to, you know, save the planet. And they were all there. And he's talking about <laughs> a few things. Uh, President Xi from China is a, you know, he's a serious leader. I mean, and we just talked to you last week about how China is playing the whole world, especially the United States and, and Joe Biden and John Kerry, on how they're going to, you know, contribute uh, to reducing carbon emissions. The bottom line is they're not contributing at all. They're going to continue business as usual. They're building coal power plants and beefing up all of their energy sources while the rest of the world is, well, doing away with all that stuff, going to wind power and all those, you know, important things that will really fuel jets and uh, airplanes and tanks when the war starts. Uh, so um, now, interestingly enough, at that conference, there's a picture it's a Zoom call, and uh, all of the world leaders are featured in their little boxes. And the thing that you notice when you look at these little boxes is that, well, President Xi and Angela Merkel and uh, yeah, Erdogan from Turkey and uh, all the all the leaders of all of these different countries, none of them have on masks. Well, I guess maybe because they're alone in their offices and they don't feel the need to have on masks, but one person does have feel the need to put on a mask and it is the president of the united states joe biden all by himself he's the only one in the picture in the little squares that has on a full black mask and uh congressman andy biggs tweeted on this which i thought was pretty amusing if it isn't pathetic what leading from behind looks like and boy is he right about that all right well so meanwhile just to show you the ridiculousness of last week i told you all the the climate change stuff was going to happen on Thursday. That was Stalin's birthday, Earth Day. <laughs> and so they're, uh, I, I'm laughing, although it's as serious as death, because they're going to destroy our ability to heat and cool and drive our cars and do anything, really. Uh, the, the State Department just last week put uh, slapped these travel restrictions on all Americans. I think you cannot go to 80% of the countries worldwide. You can't visit. You can't go because it's just too dangerous. Uh, but I, I just noticed that China and Japan, you can still visit China. You can still visit China, which, you know, has its, they're the originators of the COVID uh, pandemic. You can still go there, but you can't go, you know, to any place in Europe and all the other places that you might fancy you'd like to go. Forget it, because the State Department's not going to let you travel. But if the climate 
wackos have their way. You won't be able to travel anywhere. You won't be able to even drive across town because you won't be able to use gasoline. You'll have to use an electric car, and even that requires power. So you won't be able to go very far with that. So I guess get your bicycle out and uh, sort of warm it up. And and that reminds me of a conversation. Now, part of the one of the um, experts that the climate you know gurus like John Kerry uh, <laughs> brought in was Greta Thunberg. Greta, the young girl, to school, all of these world leaders on what climate change means. I mean, this is so bizarre to me. So Congressman Katie Porter is uh, asking Greta Thunberg some questions, and I thought you might want to hear what Katie Porter asked the, what, what is she, maybe 18 now? Greta Thunberg, let's listen. I just wanted to ask you one question. My, I have a nine-year-old daughter. I have three kids. And I told my nine-year-old daughter that I was going to be speaking with you. And I said, what do you think about the climate change, climate change? And she said, the earth is on fire and we're all going to die soon. And I asked her how that made her feel. And she said it made her feel angry. What should I tell my daughter and how should I help her and the youngest generation bear the emotional toll of the actions that we're taking, fossil fuel companies are taking to destroy our planet? Well, it's, it, thank you for your question. Um, that's a big, big question. And I know that there are many young people who feel angry and sad because of all the things that some people are, are doing to, to this planet and to, to our futures and to, to the most affected people already today. And that's very understandable. It would be strange. All right, if I'm going to interrupt you because way, she goes because on to say Greta ends up by saying she needs to get active, like Greta did. You know, she's nine years old. Her nine year old daughter should get active in fighting back. But I just thought that, you know, it is really sad because honestly, we are condemning our children uh, to depression. The suicide rates are so high because of COVID lockdowns already. And now we're telling them in school that the planet's going to be destroyed, that there's no hope. A nine-year-old saying we're all going to die soon? Is this the world we want to live in? And so, and then we want to blame it on, you know, uh, fossil fuel companies, whatever the word they used. It's just so bizarre, and it's really interesting, too, isn't it, that Katie Porter has, doesn't know what to say to her daughter because people on the left don't have, they don't understand, really, uh, they don't have a broad view. They don't believe in, I don't know if Katie believes in God. It doesn't sound like she has much faith or she would have some sort of an answer for her daughter. No comfort that she can bring to her child. So she asked Greta Thunberg to help her comfort her child. Greta, who is uh, also, you know, has mental problems. She has, um, you can see that she, she has been in her early years completely enraged uh, and unhinged. But and so the mom is asking Greta how to fix her daughter, her nine-year-old daughter. I just—it's just amazing to me what's happening, what we're doing to our kids and our families. That's why, you know, those of us that um, have families and know the Lord Jesus, we've got to work even harder uh, to talk to our children and to give them a worldview and a foundation that will help prevent, will sort of guard their minds and their hearts and their souls from the poison that's being spread in the culture. Okay, so um, a Courtney Ann Taylor was a mom in Georgia, and you may have heard this, but if you haven't, you need to. She went to a school board meeting, uh, very upset. She has a six-year-old daughter, and uh, this is what she said. 
think. Clip seven. Social emotional health. If you truly mean that, you would end the mask requirement tonight. Tonight. This is not March 2020 anymore. We have three vaccines. Every adult in the state of Georgia that wants that vaccine is eligible to get it right now. And every one of us knows that young children are not affected by this virus. They're not. And that's a blessing. But as the adults, what have we done with that blessing? We've shoved it to the side and we've said, we don't care. You're still going to wear a mask on your face every day, five and six-year-olds. You still can't play together on the playground like normal children, seven and eight-year-olds. We don't care. We're still going to force you to carry a burden that was never yours to carry. Shame on us. My six-year-old looks at me every month before I come here and she says, are you going to tell them tonight? Tell them I don't want to wear this anymore. And I say, baby, it's not time to fight that battle yet. I try to explain that there's so many things. But it's April 15th, 2021, and it's time. Take these masks off of my child. And I know what I'm going to be met with. But Ms. Taylor, the CDC, we did not vote for people at the CDC. We did elect leaders who do create policy. We elected the five of you. We chose you to make difficult decisions for our children. We chose you to make decisions that would be in our children's best interest and forcing five, six, seven, eight, and nine-year-old little children to cover their noses and their mouths where they breathe for seven hours a day, every day for the last nine months for a virus that you know doesn't affect them. That is not in their best interest. And this has to stop. Defend our children. My six-year-old can't come up here and say this. It has to stop. Take these off of our children. That was Courtney Ann uh, Taylor uh, and eloquent. You know, how can you improve on that? And I think parents are getting so fed up all over the place. It reminds me of the story we did last week about um, in Wisconsin where they took back. They organized Wis Red uh, was the movement. Uh, and they took back their, uh, in Waukesha County, the school board. Uh, they took back the county offices. And this is why I say to you, this is where the hope is. Uh, organize and take back your county. Take back your city. Uh, that's, that's the only way we're going to stop some of this stuff. But uh, that was great passion. Another article I read this morning, an Arkansas mother of five has been fired from her job uh, because she would not take the COVID-19 vaccine. And now she's, of course, reeling from that. She's got five children uh, same, that's a companion story to what I saw at uh, Houston in Houston Press. Houston Methodist employees uh, are, uh, are being forced to take the vaccine or they'll be fired, and some of them are featured in this article. And it became personal to me yesterday at church. Um, uh, there is a, a girl, uh, her, her name is Heather. Um, she is not a girl, she's a woman, but she is the adult child of two members of our church, um, long story short, she had a stroke as a young mother. She has something like three or four children and was incapacitated, and she doesn't have her children anymore. She's not; Her husband has left her, so the parents have moved her close to them, and she's in a facility where they care for her. Now, she can walk with great difficulty, but she does. She comes to church, and yesterday she was late to church, very late, and I noticed that, asked her mother about it, and she told me that in the facility where they where she lives, where Heather lives, and they care for her, they fired employees that would not take the vaccine. They fired them. And when they went to pick Heather up, she was in a mess. She wasn't cared for. And I'm hearing more and more stories about this. 
how people in uh, nursing homes and care facilities are being fired and people are and seniors and other disabled persons are being neglected. Now, I don't know what's going to happen from that. I just don't see, I just don't understand how a company can force people to take something that has risk, is unproven, it's experimental. How can you force people to take something that's experimental? Uh, and if they, they genuinely don't feel comfortable taking it, how can you force that as a consideration for employment? I don't understand that part. So I want to uh, play something. Ron Johnson is asking about this. Thank God for Senator Ron Johnson. We may run a little long on the break here, you guys. I don't know. We'll see how this works. But let's listen to what Senator Ron Johnson had to say. And then Dr. Fauci's response. Let's listen. Because it's not a fully approved vaccine, um, I think we probably should have limited the distribution to it to, to the real, to the vulnerable, uh, to people that really aren't, you know, to the very young. Uh, I see no reason to be pushing vaccines on people. What is the point? If the, the, of course, the science tells us that vaccines are 95 percent effective. So if you have a vaccine, quite honestly, what do you care if your neighbor has one or not? I mean, what, what is it to you? you you've got a vaccine and it's, you know, science is tell, telling you it's very, very effective. So why is this big push to make sure everybody gets a vaccine? So I'm not understanding, with all due respect, what he's saying. All three of the vaccines that are available are on emergency use. So I'm not sure what the point is. The Moderna is on emergency use authorization. The Pfizer is an emergency use authorization. And the J&J is an emergency use authorization. We have 567,000 people who've died so far in this country from this disease. That is a really, really good reason to get people vaccinated with a vaccine that you've shown is highly efficacious and quite safe. And that's the reason for the emergency use authorization. We are dealing with an emergency. How can anyone say that 567,000 dead Americans is not an emergency. Well, we could say it this way, Dr. Fauci. The CDC, by their own numbers, are saying only 6% of the people they claim died from COVID actually died from COVID. Only 6%. That means 34,020 people died from the virus in the period you're talking about. So maybe not quite such an emergency as you'd like us to believe. Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk. In his image, delighting in God's plan for gender and sexuality is changing hearts and lives. It speaks directly to the power and the grace of God. It gives me hope for people that I know that are struggling. The whole idea of in his image has moved me. We actually had one gentleman contact us and he said that this film changed his mind about this issue. We had a pastor reach out to us and he said that he'd been struggling with hatred in his heart towards people in the LGBTQ community. And this film helped him to realize he needed to have compassion and show people the love of Christ. We also had this same-sex attracted couple contact us and they said after seeing the film, they wanted to live obedient lives for Christ no matter what. And they said, please, Please pray for us. We know this is going to be hard. We've even had people come to faith in Jesus through In His Image. To find out more, visit inhisimage.movie. This is Pause to Pray, a chance to stop down from the daily noise of life and pray for our country's leaders. Today, we pray for Marty Walsh, United States Secretary of Labor, 
He leads the Department of Labor and enforces and suggests laws involving labor unions and the workplace. Ephesians 4.28 reminds us of the importance of hard work. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Right now, with this in mind, let's pray together. Almighty God, we ask you to guide Marty Walsh as he leads the Department of Labor. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Pause to Pray is a service of this station and the Presidential Prayer Team. Get your 2021 Prayer Journal to help guide you through the year in prayer. Available now at pausetopray.org. Hello, Americans. I'm Todd Starnes with news and commentary next. Are you looking for a university that provides a quality Christian education with excellent academic and athletic programs? Well, I want to invite you to visit Liberty University, where they offer multiple visiting opportunities to fit your schedule. Plan a visit to their Central Virginia campus and stay for an afternoon, a day, or an entire weekend. You can also take a virtual tour from the comfort of your own home. Plan your visit today by texting "Go Visit" to the number 49596. Again, that's "Go Visit" to the number 49596. We are no doubt living in very confusing times. What was once right is wrong, wrong is right. Our values have been turned upside down. Boys can now identify as girls. Marriage has been redefined. Cultural upheaval is the commonplace. So maybe it should not be much of a surprise that Canadians have decided to recognize a body of water as a legal person. An indigenous community in Quebec has given the Magpie River legal personhood status. Local resolutions would allow the river to sue the Canadian government. The personhood status would give the indigenous communities more power to negotiate with the government over how the river is used, known as a popular whitewater rafting destination. Culture war chaos, ladies and gentlemen. But that's what you get in a world where men can use the ladies' room and a guy can be betrothed to his laptop computer. I guess you could say the Magpie River is gender fluid. I'm Todd Starnes. Don't forget to connect with Sandy Rios in the morning on Facebook or email Sandy at Sandy at AFR.net. That's Sandy at AFR.net. Sandy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. We're 2019, the New York uh, State Assembly, uh, along with Governor Cuomo, passed a bill on the 46th anniversary Roe versus Wade, which was called the Reproductive Health Act. And it was really the most radical abortion bill in the country. It allows, does now even, allow late-term abortion until the baby's due date. And when the bill was passed, the assembly just erupted into cheers. Uh, The Worm World Trade Center lit up in the color pink in honor of the passage of the bill. And Andrew Cuomo said something like this. Okay, good evening. It is a good evening this evening. Congratulations, congratulations, congratulations. The, let's give a warm welcome to all the advocates who have worked so long and so hard for so many years. And let's give a round of applause to all the legislators who finally got it done. We took the vote. And we 
have a special guest of honor. It couldn't come together any better than it's come together today. Sarah Weddington, who argued Roe v. Wade here today on the 46th anniversary of Roe v. Wade. Let's give Sarah a big round of applause. Oh, let's do that. Yes, you know what? As a result of that, we can kill babies all the way through their ninth month. A mother who's imminently giving birth can ask for a, an abortion and get one in New York. And isn't that thrilling? And we lit up the towers in pink. And you wonder why God's bringing judgment to this country. Just reviewing that gives me chills. Why does the left love abortion? Why do they celebrate it like a party? Why isn't there any shame? Why don't they do it quietly if they're going to do it? Why are they so proud of this? Why are they so determined to kill millions of babies? Yet they are. Well, yet another angle to this has been brought to us by Hayden Ludwig. Hayden is the Senior Investigative Researcher for Capital Research Center, and, um, and he joins us this morning. Hayden, thanks for joining us. Great to be with you, Sandy. Yeah, so it's not just politicians and governors who are excited about passing these kind of abortion bills or about the, even the notion, the ability to kill babies. You've done a lot of research, Hayden, on who's actually paying for this stuff, and we want to talk about that. You've just done a report on this, and you start with, um, with like, big big um, uh, nonprofits, not politicians, and not Planned Parenthood, but other entities. Can, can you talk about what it is you found and how you went about finding that? Sure. So Capital Research Center specializes in tracing the money flow to the professional political activist left, you might call them. And so we're checking category by category to figure out exactly how much did each of these categories of groups spend and bring in in a given year. So we turned our attention to the pro-abortion activist groups. We discovered after sifting through about 75 or so of their public IRS filings that they brought in about $2.2 billion in 2019. And of that, they spent $1.9 billion. It's just an obscene amount of money. So obviously people want to know, well, first of all, let's, let's name names. Uh, the foundations at first, you talk about that. Uh, Bill and Melinda Gates, William and Flora Hewlett. Is that Hewlett Packard? Is that the, that company? Yeah, that's, that's right. It's the gentleman who co-founded Hewlett. Packard's also a different foundation, though less involved in uh, this particular story. <sighs> okay, so Bill and Melinda Gates and William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, you said uh, together they command a staggering $6.6 billion in total revenue. That's the companies themselves, I guess, but they're, they're one of the big contributors. Um, no, it's actually is... the foundations themselves, not the companies. That's how big those foundations are. Oh, oh yes. I'm sorry. I misspoke. Yes, I knew that. Okay, so, um, but, but the question is, well, what are they doing with all this money? What, I mean, we understand it in terms of legislation, you know, pro-life bills and all of that, but what are these foundations doing with that money? Well, I think most people think of politics as mostly the two different parties and all the lawmakers that we elect. But actually, outside that ring of politics is a much larger outer ring of activist groups, of funders, of big mega donors. I mean, people know the name George Soros, Ford Foundation, that sort of thing. But basically, there's a huge flow, tens of billions, maybe hundreds of billions of dollars, if you really could add it all up, flowing to these activist groups, mostly from large foundations. And it pays for all these groups to run um, television advertisements and election season, to lobby for different uh, causes, 
even simply to put pressure on Congress and state legislatures, they need to radicalize their legislation. Um, and so the abortion side of the political left is one of the pillars that we see on the left. I mean, everybody knows Planned Parenthood, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. We're talking about really hundreds of different organizations um, that have managed to make pro-abortion activism a, a pillar of their entire movement. Hayden, I've been around a long time, so let me just say that um, the whole notion of population control uh, and abortion uh, has been outsourced to countries around the globe by the wealthy Western countries, Canada and and, uh, United States primarily, um, leading the charge, forcing these third world countries to embrace laws and rules and enact uh, in legislation themselves to promote abortion. I remember hearing from so many, well, from not a few, uh, African countries and people about how, how they resented. Uh, we were an NCO at the, uh, when I was president of CWA, we were an, uh, an NGO at uh, the UN. And so as a non-governmental organization, for those of you who don't know what that means. And so we were there present at the UN meetings and these third world countries would come to us and just they were their hearts were broken because they were not they did not hold the same really thin view or lack of value of human life and they were being forced in order to get uh aid dollars from the United States they were forced to adapt these policies so i'm assuming that's continuing something in, in some form or fashion right hayden some of this money's going for that it's a huge part of it. So the Gates Foundation, and this, of course, is Bill and Melinda Gates, founder of Microsoft, co-founder of Microsoft. Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is one of the biggest funders of overseas activism, not just in the United States, although it is that, too. I'll give you one example. Um, the UN, you mentioned. The UN has a program called Family Planning 2020. You're probably very familiar with it. And this is exactly what it sounds like. Family planning is a euphemism I've discovered goes back to the days of Margaret Sanger and even before Planned Parenthood existed. And it's a euphemism for population control. And the Gates Foundation is one of the single largest donors to this United Nations effort, basically to do a combination of educate young girls, which is less controversial, but they believe is going to reduce population growth in those countries so they don't have children if they're educated. That's the theory. But also to overturn um, re- abortion restrictions in poor African and Asian countries. So really, ironically, for all these liberal groups, it's really a kind of um, you know cultural imperialism that's forcing these quote-unquote Western values upon these countries that simply don't want it. Well, of course, the education of kids, of girls, is, uh, you know, uh, that's a broad term, too. And it depends on what they're teaching them, and we all know that. And so they're teaching them, I'm, I'm confident, that part of that curriculum is about, you know, how to have sex, how to use condoms. They've been doing this for decades, Hayden. And oh, there's more money now, and there's just more joy. I, I just can't... I, and I also find it very ironic, and you may not be prepared to, to comment on this, but I will say that Bill Gates and Melinda are the ones who are pushing most forcefully this uh, vaccine, this COVID vaccine. Uh, and they are putting all their money behind it. They stand to make millions, maybe billions, billions, I'm sure, uh, out of the vaccine that they are backing. And I find it ironic that they would be uh, purportedly looking like they're trying to save lives at the same time while they're hell-bent on taking other lives. I find that very ironic. I don't, 
Anyway, I just don't understand that. And I don't understand why uh, population control has been a discussion really for decades. And abortion as population control has also been part of that discussion. I guess that's why they're continuing this. You found other other foundations like the the Buffett Foundation. Warren Buffett also was involved in this, right? That's right. So Warren Buffett uses a foundation named for his late wife, Susan Thompson Buffett. So that's the name, Susan Thompson Buffett Foundation. I've gone through that foundation's filings over the last two decades and discovered he's basically spent about $4 billion, a billion with a B, on abortion activism over the last two decades, which makes him almost certainly the single largest donor to pro-abortion causes in human history. I mean, I don't know anybody, even the Gates Foundation, that comes close to that. And the thing is, you know, the Gates Foundation tries to distance itself from a lot of its more heinous abortion activism. They like to come across as genuine philanthropists. Warren Buffett simply doesn't like to be seen. But if you really examine what his foundation funds, it's horrendous. Um, I'll give you an example. There's an organization called Genuity Projects, like similar like Ingenuity. And what they do is they, um, they have uh, experiments on second trimester abortive abortion drugs. Well, that's illegal in the United States and most of the Western world. So they take these drugs to poor countries in Southeast Asia and in Africa, where these women who make almost no money, they're, they're, they're virtually well below the American poverty line, go into these things because they don't have any other choice. It's, it's easy money for them. And they're basically, they're basically testing these Frankenstein drugs, these second trimester abortifacients, on these poor African and Asian women over there. That's been funded by the Buffett Foundation. So it's just despicable kind of stuff that if we saw it here, we would never countenance it for an instant. Well, it's, isn't it also highly ironic that in this age of hyper-racism, everyone's a racist, uh, everything is racist, whether you oppose Obamacare, whatever you do, it's all racist, and yet these foundations are actually exporting abortion to uh, brown and black people, shall we just say? And then, of course, you mentioned yeah. Margaret Sanger, and we know that with uh, she was the founder of Planned Parenthood, who was very much into uh, eradicating brown and black people, uh, and they don't actually even hide their connection to her. So this is really the height of racism, is it not? Yeah, and that's why I like to call it cultural imperialism. That's not my term. That's a liberal term. But, of course, they're the ones who are actually doing that, right? I mean, that's the irony. We need to use their language to defeat them. What Do you do they make any public comments on why they support this? Are, are there any statements, this is what we believe, you know, and why we believe it? Or do they? is it just money that's spent and they stay quiet? You know, I, I, it's interesting. I ask myself that question all the time because I'm so used to reading their arguments, but they almost never give you their presuppositions, right? Their, their almost theological position on the whole thing. But I use that word on purpose because the attitude I come across when I spend all this time studying the mind of the left is it really is the closest thing they have to a religion. You know, it's, yeah. they're, they're cultish in their attitude. This is the activists, I mean, not your typical liberal on the street, but they're cultish about their attitude towards this, this right to abortion that they defend more vociferously than anything else. One of the interesting things is I've gone back and I've traced the history of this movement, and of course it goes back to the old eugenics movement. That's this idea that you can beautify the population by only controlling who gets to have children, the pseudoscience, but also simply Margaret Singer and Planned Parenthood. This was 100 years ago. And what you find is they basically exchanged 
these people were vociferously, militantly anti-Christian, and they exchanged that religion for this kind of idolatry that they've created. And they managed to spread this to the rest of the ideological left, so that if you go to any organization that considers itself left of center, it is totally pro-abortion. There is no organization I know of on the left that is even skeptical of expanding abortion. And I think it's because they realize that they don't all hang together on this, and they'll hang separately. They know they have to be united as a coalition on this single issue. But they actually, uh, even as I played that opening clip, they they get excited about it. It isn't just an intellectual thing. They really get excited. They they celebrate. It's just bizarre. And so, um, Margaret, I need to also say, just because people have heard this, but if they haven't, they need to know, Planned Parenthood, you know, the uh, arbiter of health care for women in the country, always puts their abortion mills in minority neighborhoods. They're looking to abort minority children, and that is just as plain as day. It's their foundings. It's in the root of their being. And so people need to understand that. But now we have all of these big uh, philanthropists, Bill and Melinda Gates. Bill, who wants you to get, you know, a COVID vaccine because he wants you to be, you know, safe, healthy, uh, is in the business of uh, exporting mass murder in third world countries. I'm just, I just, um, it makes me angry. Every time I, I read about this, Hayden, do you um, uh, do you sense there are other companies that you traced that have been involved in this? It's a Planned Parenthood, NARAL, Pro-Choice America, and you talk about how much money, money actually went to politicians in the cycle for 2019 also, right? Yeah, that's right. So we traced it through um, political action committees, uh, PACs, right? And we found actually a minority of the money went in. About, I mean, for example, Planned Parenthood, NARAL, about $30 million in total. So that doesn't seem like a huge number next to $2.2 billion. But when you understand that, you know, typical PACs are running in just a few million dollars in many races, maybe $10 million at max, $33 million is a huge amount of money to dump into campaigns. Moreover, I think their, their, their biggest thing, too, is that they don't even need to spend directly on politicians. They have a way of doing what they call independent expenditures. And this is what the 501c4 advocacy nonprofits do. Yeah. I may not have, mm-hmm. you know, $10 million to give. Yes. We're out of time. I'm so sorry, but I, we're going to put this report on our Facebook page. It's activists brought in $2.2 billion for poor abortion policies in 2019. Hayden's done a great job of tracking all of this, and it's something that you'll want to see. And they are gradually turning around this country on abortion. Sandy Reels in the morning. From a Christian perspective, why are we here? The chief purpose of man is to know God, to glorify God, and to enjoy Him forever. He gives you purpose for being. If you've ever wondered, you know, what am I doing here? Does my life even matter? Please accept the truth that life is a gift. Exploring the Word, weekday afternoons at 3 Central on American Family Radio. Airing the Addisons. Project Lincoln is a Republican outfit that hates Trump. But they are saying that they are going to go after other Republicans who favor Trump and track them. And they're going to keep the world up to date on where these people are so that they never work in this country again. Airing the Addisons, weekday afternoons at 2 Central on AFR. If you miss it, catch the podcast anytime at AFR.net. So Aaron took it as Moses said and ran into the midst of the assembly. 
And behold, the plague had already begun among the people. And he put on the incense and made atonement for the people. And he stood between the dead and the living. And the plague was stopped. My name is Abraham Hamilton III, and this is the Hamilton Minute. Often when the concept of intercession is raised, we normally think about prayer, and we should. Prayer is one form of intercession. Here we see another, living intercession. At the climax of a plague, Aaron runs into the fray, armed with incense, and where he stands, the plague stops. Aaron literally stands between the living and the dead. May God move us to be living intercessors for our day, and where we take our stand in Christ, the plague stops. Listen each weekday from 5 to 6 p.m. Central for The Hamilton Corner with Abraham Hamilton III, public policy analyst for the American Family Association. Brian Fisher here with the Life and Liberty Minute. Many people have a fundamental misconception about Christianity. They believe that the point of Christianity is to judge people and condemn them for their sins. But the opposite is true. Jesus came into a world in which every man, woman, and child was already under the sentence of death. Whoever does not believe in me, he says, is condemned already because he loved darkness rather than light before he ever heard of me. That's why we hide the bad things we've done and hope nobody finds out about them. Jesus did not come to judge men. He didn't have to. The message of Christianity is that the liberator has come, the one who grants us pardon and freedom in place of guilt and death. If you haven't exchanged the filthy rags you were born in for the white robes of the righteousness of Christ, don't wait another day. Catch Brian Fisher on Focal Point, weekday afternoons at 105 Central on American Family Radio. This is Frank Affney with the Secure Freedom Minute. Each passing day brings more calls to defund, reform, reimagine, and even abolish the police. The enforcers of such demands are violent rioters who accuse law enforcement officers of systemic racism in instances where lethal force was employed in interactions with minority individuals. We're told Congress, not the communities affected, should set standards for policing. Certain laws should no longer be enforced. Social workers, rather than police, should respond to some emergencies. Officers in the line of must lose limited immunity, and all police must submit to training that accuses whites of endemic racism. Such initiatives probably won't eliminate the thin blue line, but they will make it a lot thinner, less effective, and transform our police into politicized officers of selective justice, not equal justice under the law. That's a formula for homeland insecurity, not the United States of America. This is Frank Gaffney. Andy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. So that was Thursday, and that was the Oklahoma Capitol, and that was Black Lives Matter protesters who stormed the Capitol over uh, Republican bills that are going to protect drivers who are fleeing rioters and police from doxing. So they came into the Capitol, and they actually uh, went toe-to-toe with a couple of the—I the, uh, don't know if they were senators or reps, I'm not sure— 
Uh, but the, the the irony of that is that, do you think that was an insurrection? You know, actually going into the chamber where the, 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 the it was convened and they were trying to do business and shouting, did, would anybody think maybe that would be an insurrection? No, I don't think so. Somehow that won't be an insurrection. That will be kind of okay. Uh, but meanwhile, back in the Capitol, which we've covered uh, a lot, on January 6th, the people who went into the Capitol there because they wanted Congress uh, to actually consider the evidence on the January 6th, uh, on the November 3rd election. Uh, they, folks, are insurrectionists, uh, seditionists, by the way. Senator Ron Johnson, God bless him, second time I've mentioned him in this uh, uh, show, and there's a reason for it. Because even though Mitch McConnell won't do this, and neither will Kevin McCarthy, Senator Ron John- Johnson is demanding why Capitol Police lied about the death of Officer uh, Brian Sicknick. They said, I'll just read this to you. The U.S. Capitol Police claimed that Officer Brian Sicknick suffered mortal injuries while on duty after clashing with protesters during the Capitol riot. Uh, The Capitol Police announced Sicknick, 42, died on January 7th, one day after rioters broke into the Capitol. As lawmakers counted electoral votes to affirm President Joe Biden's victory, in its statement, the department said Sicknick, quote, was injured while physically engaging with protesters and that he was taken to a local hospital where he succumbed to his injuries. The New York Times rushed, of course, to falsely report the same thing, said that two law enforcement officials uh, said that the 13-year-old vet, 13-year veteran was beaten with a fire extinguisher and died hours later at the hospital. So Ron Johnson wants to know. He sent a letter to Capitol Police Chief Yogananda Pittman contending the determination from Chief Medical Officer Francisco Diaz. Uh, it's, he said it raises more questions about what the uh, U.S. Capitol Police knew and what actions they took to confirm certain facts. So he's trying to hold their feet to the fire, and God bless him. He's the only one doing it. He's the only one doing it. All right, so um, that brings me to uh, Congressman Cory Bush was on The View uh, in the, the aftermath of the decision on George Floyd and on uh, the officer, the guilty pleas, or guilty plea, no, the guilty findings on all three counts of the officer. Uh, she went on, she's from Missouri, she went on The View, and this is what she said. My push is that we defund our police departments. And I know people don't want to hear, oh, we don't want to talk about defunding. But when we talk, I want people to be clear about what I mean when I say defunding the police. I'm saying demilitarize, and this is Corey, I'm not speaking for the entire Black Lives Matter movement. But when I say defund the police, I'm saying that our militarized police force uh, forces across this country, I'm saying $150,000 spent on an MRAP or $300,000. I'm saying tear gas and rubber bullets and stockpiling SWAT gear. I'm saying noise munitions. All of those things that we have in our in our police departments that hurt people like us. And I know because I'm, I'm someone who has been hurt by that, by those things. When we if we remove that and take that money and put it into our education system, put it into making sure our unhoused community members are sheltered, put it into mental health resources. That's what we're saying, because that is what is going to make our community safer. Because if we, if we, you know, I'll say this, almost a thousand people have been murdered by police, have been killed by police since George Floyd lost his life. Almost a thousand. We cannot continue to do the same thing and expect something different. All right, so uh, there's a few things to say about that. First of all, uh, the police are trying to hurt people like us. So the police only want to kill and hurt black people, right? That's the party line. That's what Cori Bush is pushing. 
Uh, she's also said over a thousand people have lost their lives since George Floyd by, at the hands of police. I, I just want to bring these stats to you. This is reality. In 2020, the police in altercations with citizens killed 241 black killed, no, shot 240 black people, 15, no, killed, I'm sorry, killed. I may be really clear about this. These are killings. The police in altercations killed 241 black people, 15 were unarmed. They killed 457 white people, and they killed 169 Hispanic people. That's how many in 2020. Those are the police killings. 457 white, 241 black, 15 of them, only 15 were unarmed, Hispanic, 169. So there's the breakdown, just to be clear about this, and yet she wants to continue to push uh, this false narrative. And I want to say that black-owned businesses, by the way, in the George Floyd Square are pleading for help because the police are not there. They're not allowed. They've got it blocked off. And so crime is skyrocketing, and they are begging for help because their businesses are dying. Okay, so it's hurting black people. We've said that. That's concrete evidence. And uh, I, I don't usually do this, but I'm going to today. There was a caller last week to another radio show. Actually, it was a Rush Limbaugh show. And her name was Joyce. And as I recall, she's like 88. She's a, she's a black woman who's like 88. You have to hear what she says. You have to hear what she says. And so we're going to. Here it is, clip one. Thank you. You know, I, I, I want to talk about the... The, the Floyd situation, and I didn't watch the trial because I purposed in my heart that it, he could not get a fair trial. And I'm not saying that he should have gotten away scot-free. That's not what I'm saying. But there is no way that this man, this policeman, could get a fair trial when you are picking jurors and they award that family $27 million dollars what is that telling the juror? Then you got you got your whole city boarded up because if thugs don't get their way, they're going to burn down your city. I don't agree with the jurors, but I can understand their, their, their reasoning that if you can't protect your police precinct, you let it be burned down. What is to say that, that these people learned that I was a juror, that they won't burn down my house. I could understand that. I don't agree, but I can understand their reasoning. And then in my community, when it became racial, I am so sick and tired of this syntemic racism. There are no organized conspiracies to keep blacks down. There are pockets of bigotry, sure. But they are not powerful enough to keep you down if you have some get up and go about yourself. Mm. And mm-hmm. I hear this constantly. And I live in the most dangerous neighborhood in Houston, the sixth in the nation. And we constantly talk about racism, who is keeping us down. And I contend that, and it's always said that those old rich Republicans are the reason that our communities uh, have turned, good, nice communities in Houston have turned into ghettos, and the old white, rich Republicans are the cause of it. And I get so tired of telling my people 
the old rich white Republicans is not our problem. We are our problem. And until we face the fact that we are our own worst enemies, nothing is going to change. There are blacks in my community, senior citizens, that have gotten broken into and murdered. You don't even know their name. But you know Floyd all over this nation, all over the world, you know Floyd. And he shouldn't have been killed, okay? But you don't even know these seniors' names. Ask my congresswoman, Sheila Jackson Lee, when she is up in Washington getting things ready for illegal aliens to stay here, ask her does she know any of these seniors' names in our community. She is our representative. I guarantee you she don't know their names. But I tell you one thing, she sure know about Floyd. Yes, and so uh, I don't know if she ever identifies in this clip uh, if her age, but I believe she's like, she's in her eighties for sure. You know, and I sense I, I don't know my sense of it is that she, just from her language that she's a Christian. Um, I feel a connection with her because she's an honest person. She's not finished. There's two more minutes. Let's listen to it. And we have got to stop in the black community. I have traveled out of this country several times, and I want to say to the blacks that's listening that you're so angry and you come up with this fake racism and everything. That's not our problem. There's no better place for us. And you're going to sit here and allow people to use you as pawns to mess up what's best for you because there ain't no better place for us. Like I say, I've been several times. There's no better place for us. And I am tired of you blaming someone else. And really, in our community, one of the main reasons that these young people are getting shot and killed, because they didn't have, and especially these young black men, they didn't have no dads in the home. When Obama was in the White House, Oh, in my community, they just, oh, we are so blessed we have a black man in the White House. I said, but we need a black man in the black house. If we had black men in these homes, uh, the policemen, if they had these black men in these homes and put something on their behind when they needed it, not a few, (laughs) then the policemen wouldn't have to shoot them when they stopped them because we have taught them to hate the policeman. We teach it from little bitty things. We tell them, if you're bad, I'm going I'm to call the policeman. You put that in that baby's mind that the policeman is bad. There are a few bad policemen, but basically the policemen are out there to do a job to protect us. And I get so tired of, oh, they arrest more blacks than they do whites. We do more, more crime. So what are they going to do? Just let us go? We have got to change. Yeah. Okay. So, um, you know, when I was on, okay, a radio in Chicago, when I already said this, but I have to set it up because you never know who's heard what. I had a very large black audience. We had wonderful discussions. And even then, this is in the the late 90s, I would get calls from the South Side. And I remember one in particular uh, talking to me about how the young black uh People, kids, boys mostly, would walk around with just, she said, they just have, there's no soul. It's like they don't have any soul. Like the, the soul is out of their eyes. It's like they're empty. It's like they're, uh, and you hear the, uh, the pain in her voice 
Now, we could talk and say, yeah, we know that's the problem, and thank goodness some black woman is saying that, but the thing that strikes me is the pain that the black community is suffering because of the uh, because of the behavior of some of their own, uh, because of, they've, they've actually, you talk about murders. You know, the black community is preyed upon by black criminals. Uh, and there's so much murder and destruction of property. You just heard it talk about, you know, seniors who've been killed. That's killed by black criminals in their neighborhoods. And so they know that, but um, it, it's a conundrum, and it's heartbreaking. And if you're trying to raise your children, like I'm familiar with Chicago because that's my, my hometown, uh, you, you're trying to raise your kids and you're trying to send them to school and you want them to get an education, and they are even at risk when they go out of the house. We say a risk by the police. They're at risk by black criminals. That's who they are at risk. They go around and do these gang shootings and, you know, shoot through the houses and kill children who are just innocently lying in their beds. It is, a, it is like the destruction of human life is unbelievable. And that's what Joyce is, the, the angst in her voice, she sees that and she understands how do you t- untangle that? How do you untangle that? The only way you untangle that is the, the redemption of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and I think, you know, I, I bet you anything, Joyce knows all about that. And, and remember that people, black and white and brown and yellow, uh, all of us are depraved in our natures. We are depraved. Uh, it was because of violence that God destroyed the earth and it, they weren't black people. Uh, well, they could have been some black people, but it wasn't about that. It's because they were left to their own devices. They slaughtered each other and couldn't think of more creative ways to slaughter each other some more. And we must repent and we must ask God for forgiveness. Uh, we need revival, all of us, the entire world. And um, I think it's coming. I don't know how that's what that's going to look like, but I know that God is at work. Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.